we are continuing our series at the movies. And today we will talk about the movie Angry Birds. How many of you saw this movie? Go ahead and raise your hand. Be proud if you saw it. Go ahead. How many of you took your kids to see this movie? How many of your kids liked it? Did you like it? Oh, good. Can I be honest? I thought it was awful. I did. I kept waiting for it to get better. I thought, it's not funny. I don't think my grandkids would think it was funny or entertaining. And there was a reason that the theater was empty. I thought about playing the game Angry Birds while waiting for the movie Angry Birds to finally be over. There was one part of the movie where I perked up thinking, there is a spiritual concept I might be able to use. And then they turned that into middle school bathroom humor. And so I can't even use that. I basically left the theater saying, there's an hour and 45 minutes of my life that I will never get back. I guess I'm giving it a bad review. What do you think? If you were waiting for it to come out uh, on Netflix, don't bother. But I said I would bring a message on it before I saw the movie, so let's do this. <laughs> Basically, the movie is about a bird with anger problems who lives among irritatingly happy birds. They face a threat when the pigs come to their island and the angry bird helps the happy birds get angry so that they can save their island. Yes, that took an hour and 45 minutes to watch. Yes, the point of the movie is that sometimes anger is good. Do you agree with that? Well, I know sometimes it at least feels good. Let me read you one of my favorite stories. It's uh, kind of old now, but um, I want to read it to you. I was sitting at my desk when I remember a phone call that I had forgotten to make. I found the number and dialed it. And a man answered saying, hello. I politely said, this is Chris. Could I please speak with Robin Carter? Suddenly, a manic voice yells out in my ear, get the right phone number and the phone was slammed down on me. I couldn't believe that anyone could be so rude. When I tracked down Robin's correct number to call her, I found that I had accidentally transposed the last two digits. After hanging up with her, I decided to call the wrong number again. When the same guy answered the phone, I yelled, you're a jerk, and hung up. I wrote this number down with the word jerk next to it and put it in my desk drawer. Every couple of weeks, when I was paying bills or had a really bad day, I'd call him up and yell, you're a jerk. It always cheered me up. When caller ID was introduced, I thought my therapeutic jerk calling would have to stop. So I called his number and said, hi, this is John Smith from the telephone company. I'm calling to see if you're familiar with our caller ID program. He yelled, no, and slammed down the phone. I quickly called him back and said, that's because you're a jerk, and hung up. One day, 
I was at the store getting ready to pull into a parking spot. Some guy in a black BMW cut me off and pulled into the spot I had patiently waited for. I hit the horn and yelled that I'd been waiting for the spot, but the guy ignored me. I noticed a for sale sign in his back window, so I wrote down his number. A couple of days later, right after calling the first jerk, I had his number on speed dial, I thought that I'd better call the BMW jerk too. I said, is this the man with the black BMW for sale? He said, yes it is. I asked, can you tell me where I can see it? He said, yes. I live at 34 Oak Tree Boulevard and the car's parked right out front. I asked, what's your name? He said, my name's Don Hansen. I asked, when's a good time to catch you, Don? He said, I'm home every evening after five. I said, listen, Don, can I tell you something? He said, yes. I said, Don, you're a jerk. Then I hung up and I added his number to speed dial two. Now when I had a problem, I had two jerks to call. Then I came up with an idea. I called jerk number one and said, hello. I said, you're a jerk, but I didn't hang up. He asked, are you still there? And I said, yeah. He screamed, stop calling me. I said, make me. He asked, who are you? I said, my name is Don Hansen. <laughs> he said, yeah, where do you live? I said, jerk, I live at 34 Oak Tree Boulevard. I have a black Beamer parked in front. He said, I'm coming over right now, Don, and you had better start saying your prayers. I said, yeah, like I'm really scared, jerk, and I hung up. Then I called jerk number two. He said, hello. I said, hello, jerk. He yelled, if I ever find out who you are, I said, you'll what? He exclaimed, I will beat you senseless. I said, well, jerk, here's your chance. I'm coming over right now. <laughs> then I hung up and I called 911 and Channel 9 News about the gang war going down on Oak Tree Boulevard in Fairfax. I quickly got into my car and headed over to Fairfax. I got there just in time to watch two jerks fighting each other in front of six cop cars, an overhead news helicopter, and surrounded by news crews. Now I feel much better. <laughs> well, sometimes getting angry does make you feel better, and I don't know if that's a true story or not. I kind of hope it isn't, though. But it's fun nonetheless. And you will think about it at times when you feel angry and frustrated by other drivers, won't you? But what about it? Are there really times when anger is a good thing? Are there times when mad isn't bad? The Bible would seem to say there are times when anger is good or righteous, but there are many other times when anger is destructive and sinful. So sometimes my anger pleases God, and sometimes my anger displeases him. So how do I know when it's okay to be angry and when it's not? How can we judge when anger is righteous or just selfish? It can't just be when I feel justified being angry because most of us feel justified every time we're angry. I don't know about you, 
But I want to make sure that I don't fall into the trap of attempting to justify anger that would be sinful, anger that would not please God. Let me give you three lessons from angry birds or really just about anger and our attitude towards it. The first lesson or attitude adjustment is this. Be angry. It's okay. Be angry. It's okay. Look at this verse from Ephesians 4, verse 26. It says, when you are angry, do not sin. This verse says something significant. It tells me it's possible to be angry without sinning. It's possible to be angry without sinning. It indicates we will get angry. Did you catch the word when? It doesn't say if you get angry. It says when. And the original language was written, uh, that this was written in was even more specific. It uses the command form of the language. The New American Standard Version translates it well when it says simply, be angry, yet do not sin. Not only does it say we can be angry without sinning, but it seems to say that we must get angry at some things. There are things that should create a godly anger in us. Now, this is a big attitude adjustment for some of you. Because you have been taught it's always a bad thing when you get mad. In fact, you have worked hard to deny that you ever get angry. I mean, something happens that would make most of us angry, and someone says to you, are you angry? And you say, no, I'm not angry. And they say, well, I would be angry. And you say, I am not angry. And if they push it one more time, you say, would you quit saying I'm angry? I am not angry. Guess you told them. People who struggle with this idea that anger is always bad use different words. They'll say things like, my husband and I never argue. We just dialogue with each other about things that we have slightly different opinions on. I always want to say, oh, really? In my house, we call that an argument. That's what we call it. But it's okay for you to be angry. Did you know even Jesus got angry? Let me quickly point out three times when Jesus was angry. First, Jesus and the money changers. He was angry with them. You can read this later, but it's one of the few events that is recorded in all four accounts about the life of Jesus. What happens is Jesus goes into the temple and he finds people selling animals for sacrifice and exchanging foreign money for temple currency. And Jesus gets mad. And it's not just a little mad. He is really steamed. Jesus overturns the tables of the money changers and he drove the animals out of the temple court with a whip. And uh, as he's doing this, he says, it is written in scripture, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you are changing it into a hideout for thieves. I don't think he said that calmly. He was angry. The second example we have of Jesus getting angry 
is found in Matthew chapter 12, and it's Jesus and the religious leaders. In this situation, Jesus is going to a synagogue to teach, and there is a man there with a crippled hand. There are also people there with crippled hearts. And the people with crippled hearts are waiting to see if Jesus would heal the man with the crippled hand. And you see, they thought that healing a man on the Sabbath, on the day of rest, would be a sin and that they might catch Jesus in something they could criticize him for. And Jesus became angry. He points out the sinful, hard hearts of the religious people and he goes ahead and he heals the man. Later in the same chapter, it tells of Jesus casting out demons from a man, and the religious leaders get jealous of the attention that the people in the crowd are paying to Jesus. And so the religious leaders say his power comes from Satan, and Jesus gets angry. He gets angry again, and he warns them about the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit by attributing God's power and God's works to the devil. And this is one of the places where Jesus calls the religious leaders a bunch of snakes or a brood of vipers. The third time Jesus got angry was with his closest followers, with the disciples. Jesus is teaching, and people were trying to bring their children to him so that Jesus could touch them, so that Jesus could bless them. And the disciples tried to stop them. They probably explained to these parents how busy Jesus was, how important Jesus was. And Jesus got upset with them. He instructed them not to prevent the children from coming to him because they were most like what God wants us to be like. And so that's three times that Jesus got upset or angry And it illustrates the first attitude adjustment. Go ahead. Be angry. It's okay. It's okay. The second lesson that we need to learn is to be angry at the right things. Be angry at the right things. It's okay to be angry, but be angry at the right things. Look at that verse from Ephesians again. When you are angry, do not sin. Well, we mentioned that this verse points out it's possible to be angry and not sin, but it points out something we already know. It's also possible to sin because you're angry. So we need to figure out when it's okay and when it's sinful. And there's a real danger here because James, the brother of Jesus, warns us this. He says, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. As I indicated earlier, my problem is every time I get angry, it seems so right to me. It seems so justified. Every time I can explain why my anger is righteous anger, but it isn't always righteous. It isn't always right. There are times when I'm just in a foul mood. We men tend to suffer from UMS, ugly mood swings. And it's usually a few hours later or a day later before I realized that my anger was unnecessary, that my anger was ungodly. So how can I be sure I'm angry at the right things and not just in an ugly mood. Let me share with you three things that righteous anger focuses on. Here's three things that righteous anger focuses on. First, righteous anger focuses on actual sin. 
It focuses on actual sin. This was one of the reasons Jesus got mad at the money changers. These guys were cheating people. They were being dishonest. The people had to bring these animals to sacrifice, and the sacrifices were to be without blemish. And these people had devised a corrupt system where the priests would get a kickback from those selling the animals. And so the inspectors would reject most of the animals people brought from home, pointing out some blemish. And these people would be forced to buy their animals for high prices there. And the money changers were also dishonest in the exchange rates that they would give, and they cheated people. And so Jesus saw this corrupt, dishonest system, and he knew that it was a sin, and he got angry at actual sin. See, the first mark of righteous anger is it reacts against actual sin. It arises from an accurate perception of what really is evil, what really is wrong. Sin is missing the target that God had intended. It's when I ignore his guidelines or fail to reflect his heart. And this is what ought to arouse our anger. This means that for anger to be righteous, it cannot arise from a response to a violation of my personal preferences. It can't arise because I've been inconvenienced or I feel my rights and freedoms have been trampled on. Righteous anger reacts against what is really sin. And that sin is against God. It's not against me. Righteous anger is when I see God being hurt by people's choices to ignore him and his principles. And we've seen that many times in the last few weeks in our society. The terrorist attack in Nice is the latest, and it was a sin against God. It was a sin against his heart. And I think God is angry by, angered by it. And I'm angry. And I think my anger is righteous. Another thing righteous anger focuses on is hindrances to God's purposes. Hindrances to God's purposes. When we turn to the Bible to find accounts of righteous anger, we see this kind of anger focused on God and his kingdom, on his rights, on his purposes, not on me, not on my kingdom, not on my rights, not on my concerns. It is a violation of God's name or God's purposes that motivates anger, not my name, not my desires. And this was the other reason Jesus was angry that day when he entered the temple. They had those money changers tables set up and they were selling those animals in the court of the Gentiles. Now, why was that a big deal? because that was the only place where non-Jewish people could worship God. So imagine this room right now full of tables from flea markets with people buying and selling while we were trying to worship. That's what Jesus saw that day. That's one of the things that made him angry. They were hindering people who God loved from being able to encounter God and worship him. It's also why Jesus got mad at the religious leaders. You see, they were misrepresenting God's heart. They were indicating that God cared so little for people that he would want them to suffer another day instead of experiencing healing right then. And any time this happens, it should make us mad. And it happens in subtle ways. 
if followers of Jesus looked down on people who were of a different race or status or background or when church members make anyone feel unwelcomed or left out because of their past history or because of their sinful choices or when we insist that everyone agree with our politics because we think that we are so right biblically. And when we do these things, we push people away from Jesus and we prevent people from worshiping and that should make us angry. It made Jesus angry. The last one that we'll look at is injustice towards people. The injustice of cheating poor people was part of the reason Jesus got mad in the temple that day, but this is also why he got mad when his closest followers were preventing children from coming to him. I think what upset him was that the disciples seemed to say children aren't important enough for Jesus to bother with. Children aren't important enough for Jesus to bother with, and Jesus said just the opposite is true. We all need to become like children. We need to become like children. And it should make us angry whenever people are devalued. And it happens in so many ways. Sometimes it happens in the way that people treat a waitress or a store clerk. I'm sorry, maybe it's a little thing, but I get mad when a person goes up to a counter and they, keep just, they just keep talking on their cell phone and don't say a word to the clerk in the store. I think that devalues the person doing business. And devaluing people happens when Christians insist on getting what they like in church rather than doing the things the way that will help people far from God be comfortable enough to hear the message. I'm proud of our church leaders. They have decided that we will make changes in our methods so that we can do whatever it takes to help people find salvation through Jesus. We've never changed what we believe doctrinally. We've never changed what we believe in any way, but we've changed our music and we've changed our dress code and we've changed other methods to show that we value people who are headed for a Christless eternity. And we're about to invest a lot of money to meet people who are far from God in a community center that will be a non-threatening first touch with our church and hopefully with Jesus. Now, when you look at these things that righteous anger focuses on, did you notice the common thread? Jesus got angry when people were hindered from understanding how much God valued and loved them or were prevented from getting close to him. And that may give us a major clue as to what the right things are that we should get angry about. Anger based on hindering God's purpose in the lives of people might possibly be righteous. Anger based on my preferences or pursuits is usually selfish and may be unrighteous. When was the last time you became really angry about the church or your growth group not doing enough to reach people for Jesus? When was the last time you got really angry about people oppressing poor people or about people devaluing or criticizing or looking down on people who God loves? You see, if my anger is going to be okay, if it's even going to be godly, I need to be angry at the right things. Lastly, if my anger is going to be okay, if it's even going to be godly, the Bible says that I must be angry in the right ways. I need to be angry in the right ways. Obviously, righteous anger has to be expressed 
in a righteous way. If you read the life of Moses in the Old Testament, you will find that he got really angry with the people. They weren't trusting God and following God. They were criticizing their leaders, and Moses got angry. Was it righteous anger? Yes. Even God was angry with them, and even God punished them because of this sin. But if you read the life of Moses, you will find that he was punished by God and not allowed to enter the promised land. Why? Write this down. Moses' anger was righteous, but how he expressed it was not. His anger was righteous, but how he expressed it was not. This tells me it's possible to be angry for the right reasons and sinful in the way that I express it. Look again at our scripture from Ephesians 4. It gives us some instructions for keeping godly, ang uh, keeping godly anger from becoming sinful anger. I, I will start at verse 26, and we'll read, I think, all the way through verse 32. When you are angry, do not sin, and be sure to stop being angry before the end of the day. Do not give the devil a way to defeat you. When you talk, do not say harmful things, but say what people need, words that will help others become stronger. Then what you say will do good for those who listen to you. And do not make the Holy Spirit sad. The Spirit is God's proof that you belong to him. God gave you the Spirit to show that God will make you free when the final day comes. Do not be bitter or angry or mad. Never shout angrily or say things to hurt others. Never do anything evil. Be kind and loving to each other and forgive each other just as God forgave you in Christ. This passage gives us five tips for keeping righteous anger righteous. Let's go through them quickly. First, don't let it last. Don't let it last. Verse 26 says, to resolve your anger before the end of the day. And verse 31 says, don't be bitter, angry, or mad. We need to deal with our anger quickly. And if you have been holding a grudge for a week, a month, or for years, even if your anger was initially godly and righteous, it's now sinful. It's now ungodly, righteous anger is dealt with quickly by talking directly to the person that you're angry with or by deciding to forgive them, which means that you never talk to anyone about your anger. Number two, don't let the devil win. Don't let the devil win. Satan wins when we sit around seething with anger and don't do anything. Righteous anger should move us to action. It moves us to fix relationships. It moves us to help hurting people. It moves us to volunteer for a ministry or to help people in some way. The devil wins when we stay angry and we, when we talk to others about the person we're angry with. Satan wins when we sit around and talk about how angry we are about injustice in our world without doing anything to try to help the problem. Third, don't say harmful things. Yes, this is a reoccurring theme in the Bible, especially when it talks about anger. Our mouths get us in trouble when we're angry, sometimes even when we're not angry, but especially when we're angry. The passage is clear. We shouldn't shout angrily at each other. We shouldn't say things that will hurt 
other people. Angry, hurtful words often cancel out godly anger. I've been kind of on a campaign the last 10 to 15 years to help Christians understand this as it relates to politics. The last several presidents and most candidates for office have been treated with total disrespect. I have heard them called evil or arrogant or ignorant and idiots, and I've heard that from people who claim to be followers of Jesus. And I may have some righteous anger about things our politicians are doing, and people may decide to vote against them and encourage others to do the same, but hurtful, hateful words are not godly, even if your anger is. It doesn't matter if they are said aloud or if they're typed on Twitter or Facebook or contained in some joke, ungodly words do not express godly anger. The passage is clear. We are to say only things that will help and do good to people who listen to them. That means we refuse to gossip. We refuse to listen to negative, critical people. We don't tell off-colored jokes. We don't question people's motives. We gently correct wrongs. Our words are to be helpful, not harmful. Next one, don't do evil things. I don't need to say much about this, but the passage says never do anything evil. Doing evil to protest evil is evil. Doing evil to protest evil is evil. Those who claim to be pro-life and murder a doctor who performs an abortion is neither godly or pro-life. Those who assassinate the character of those that they're angry at are no different scripturally than those who physically murder somebody that they're angry with. Doing evil to protest evil is evil. And then lastly, do imitate Jesus. Do imitate Jesus. We need to be like him. We need to be like him in our attitudes and in our words and in our actions. Verse 32 says we should be kind and loving to each other. Even in the midst of our anger, we should show each other the love and kindness that Jesus would show in the situation. Even in the hardest situation, we're supposed to express the love of God. What would Jesus do is a good question for when we're angry. And the major way we need to deal with righteous anger is to forgive them just as God forgave us through Christ. Jesus paid the price to forgive us while we were still sinners. He was quick to forgive us, and we need to be quick to forgive those who have done something to hurt us or have done something to hurt the cause of Jesus. The passage also talks about the Holy Spirit, which is the part of God that comes to live inside of us when we become Christians. It says that we should be careful not to grieve the Holy Spirit or to make him sad. It then has this passage that doesn't seem to fit with the rest of this part on anger. It says the Holy Spirit is God's proof that we belong to him. The Holy Spirit is God's proof that we belong to him. How does this apply to how we express godly anger? I think it's just a reminder that we are supposed to represent God. People will know we belong to him because of 
the Holy Spirit in our life because they see him in us. Look at this passage from Romans chapter 8, verse 9. But you are not ruled by your sinful selves. You are ruled by the Spirit if that Spirit of God really lives in you. But the person who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. So when we express our anger, godly or ungodly anger, in an ungodly way, it harms the cause of Christ. It doesn't reflect the fact that we are controlled by God's Spirit. If we are continually controlled by His Spirit, we will exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. And many of the fruit of the Spirit will help us as we're dealing with angry situations. Here's what the fruit of the Spirit is from Galatians chapter 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. May we exhibit the Spirit of Christ every time we get angry, whether it's righteous anger or unrighteous anger. Because how we treat each other when we're angry demonstrates whether or not we're allowing Jesus to control our hearts, whether Jesus controls our lives. And if you're constantly struggling to reflect Jesus when you're angry, Look again at that verse from Romans chapter 8. But the person who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for loving us even in the midst of times when we don't always show your love to others. Forgive us for the times, Father, when our anger was anything but godly, and yet we have justified it in some way. Forgive us, Father, for the times when we've justified evil to respond to evil. Father, we want to let you love us. We want to let you love others through us. Help us, Father, to reflect Jesus to let the Spirit control us, whether we're happy or sad, grieving or angered. And Father, we want to give ourselves to you, our reactions to you, as a response of love and gratitude for all that you have done to us. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.